Dr. Mark Ross, thank you for being here to bring God's word. Appreciate you. Well, my thanks to all of you. Uh, first of all, what you've meant in the life of my brother and his family. Uh, he's been a great blessing to us as a family. It was a great blessing to my parents while they lived and has been a blessing to the rest of us ever since. And we know that his church family helps make him part of what he is. So we are grateful to you. Of course, I've had more connections with this church than just through my brother and his uh, multitudinous family. First of all, it should be mentioned, I came to faith in Jesus Christ because of Bob Long, who is the son of this church. Uh, uh, and uh, during the time uh, that I was at the University of Pittsburgh, I was brought into a discipleship uh, with uh, Bob Long, and uh, there were a couple of other guys in that group that you know very well, one of whom is Steve Hine. Uh, I was just with Steve uh, a little over a week ago. When I ended up in Columbia, South Carolina, I ended up in a church where Kay, Steve's wife's aunt, Kay, uh, the one for whom she was named, was a beloved member of our church. And uh, Kay's aunt Kay just passed away at 98 years of age uh, just uh, last week. So uh, Steve and Kay were in town. And I told them I'd be coming. I bring you greetings from Steve and Kay. And of course, Jim Twerty uh, was here with you all as well. And uh, Jim was just a couple of years ahead of me on the basketball team, uh, and light years ahead of me in basketball. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> Jim Twerty meant uh, a lot to me. I know you've uh, known my roommate, Ken Wagner, who has been there at uh, times uh, to speak. So uh, thank you all for all that you have meant uh, to our church. Uh, and then Miriam Drone, uh, out of your church, was a member of our church in Columbia. She's now gone off to Better Life in Colorado, uh, but uh, she was with us and much beloved uh, in the church in Columbia for many years. So thank you all for the opportunity to be with you on this day uh, and to be in this church and to share with you the Word of God on the occasion as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And the passage that I would like to share with you today relates to that, and you will find it in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, that mysterious book of Hebrews, uh, which like the somewhat focal point of that book, a man by the name of Melchizedek comes to us uh, in an unknown way, a man whose name is not given to us, uh, whose lineage is not given to us, but the book he left to us speaks for itself as the Word of God. And we'll be reading in Hebrews chapter 6 today, beginning at verse 13. Before we read, let's ask the Lord's help in prayer. Our God, our Heavenly Father, how we pray that as now your Word is read, and as we think upon it, as it is open to us, your Holy Spirit would be the speaker this day, speaking to our hearts and minds and bringing to us the truth of this book, that we may indeed have that strong encouragement that is spoken of in this passage. Help us to hear the word of God this day, to keep it in our hearts, to live by it faithfully all our days, for we ask it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hebrews 6, beginning at verse 13. 
For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by someone greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he confirmed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. May God the Holy Spirit help us now in the understanding of these words. I mentioned part of the, hist- uh, the mystery of this particular book because we do not know its author. If you're reading in the King James Bible, many of them still record an ancient tradition that this letter had come to us from the Apostle Paul. But that is very doubtful. That is because in all Paul's other writings, he tells us he is the author. He sends it as a letter and he identifies himself straight up. Perhaps more important than that is that the author of this book, whomever he was, says something about himself that you just can't imagine that the Apostle Paul would have said of himself even under torture. (laughs) What is that? Well, the author of this book exhorts us to Pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Because, he said, after it was first declared to us by the Lord, it was delivered to us. He puts himself there with us. It was delivered to us by those who heard. Do you see what the author has done? He's put himself there in the third place. The Lord spoke it, and then there were those who heard it. And then those who heard it delivered it to us. Now, why would the Apostle Paul never say anything like that? Well, because he was always adamant that the gospel that he received, he did not receive from any man. He received it directly by revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the interesting things about that is it's recorded in the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ said to us, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. That is very interesting because that is not found in any of the Gospels. The four Gospel writers who gave us the words of Jesus in his earthly ministry, none of them recorded that particular passage. But Paul knew it. He didn't get it from them. He got it by a revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. So this book comes to us from an unknown author. But if so, it does come to a people of whom we know some things. We don't know exactly who they were or where they were. We have some good educated guesses. 
But reading in the book, it's quite plain, they were a people who were suffering. They were a people who had come under persecution. Not of the worst kind, because no one had yet died. The author says no one has yet shed blood. But some had been thrown into prison. And some had had their property confiscated from them. And the author is writing to them, who, having already suffered, need to prepare for more suffering. So they were a people in need of encouragement. And, and that was part of the focus of the passage that we read here today. He wants to bring them encouragement to hold fast, even under the pressures of their day, under the threat of persecution, under the threat of losing property, losing freedom, possibly even losing their lives. He wants them to hold fast to the hope that is set before them. And we want to look at the way in which he offers us that same hope here today. And as we look into the passage, I want to take you into verses 17 and 18 especially. And I want to just share with you three things out of the many that are found in just those two verses. Verse 17 says, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have believed might have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. The first thing I want you to notice here is that God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He desired to show in a more convincing way to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. Now, why would God desire to do such a thing? Was there a need for God to show in a more convincing way? To show what? Well, it it was to show to the heirs of the promise. These were people who had already received the promise of God. They had God's promise. God desired to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. Now, if God has given us a promise, why would we need anything more? God's promises are absolutely dependable. It is impossible for God to lie, according to our passage. Why would he desire to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose? Well, it wasn't because his promise needed to be strengthened. It was because his people needed to be strengthened. That even with a promise from one with whom it is impossible that he should lie, it's possible that people, in the midst of their sufferings, with the many needs that they have in this world, might stand in need of added assurance. And of course, the person of which he speaks here is Abraham. He goes back, he says, when God desired, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. 
The author here is quoting from what we have as Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. That's the chapter that records the uh, the, uh, intended sacrifice of Isaac. God had commanded Abraham to take his son and to offer him upon a mountain. As you know, God provided a substitute on that occasion. And when he does, this has been a, a very important revelation of God's purposes to Abraham. And he had seen that God was promising that upon that mountain, a sacrifice would one day in the future be offered. And in commemoration of it, he named that mountain Yahweh Yireh. Yahweh will provide. Abraham had seen it. John chapter 8, Jesus says, Abraham looked forward to my day. He saw it and rejoiced. Well, he saw it from that mountain on that particular day. And on that occasion, God said, by myself I have sworn. But you know, although it says that in that chapter, it was not at that time in that chapter that God swore by himself. That's actually a look back to something earlier that had happened. When God swore by himself. Now why do I say that? Well, part of the reason is because of the second thing that I want to draw your attention to in this passage is that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he confirmed it with an oath. Well, how does that help us know when God swore by himself? Well, the word oath in the New Testament is a synonym for the word covenant. Now, if we had a lot of time this morning, and we don't, we're going to spend half a day confessing our sins. <laughs> but if we had a lot of time, I could walk you patiently through a number of other passages. But I'll just give you a reference that you can go and look up at home. Luke chapter 1, in the Song of Zechariah, beginning at verse 72 and following, Zechariah, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit upon the birth of his son, who would be John the Baptist, spoke of how God had been faithful to his covenant, and then he says, the oath that he had sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God was faithful to his covenant, and he called covenant the oath. So in the New Testament, the word oath is a synonym for the word covenant, and it's the same in the Old Testament. Psalm 105, verses 8 and 9, again, you see that Covenant and oath are brought together. Now, if you're reading in the ESV, as I did here this morning, and you go back and check it, you're going to find not the word oath, but the word sworn promise. Well, that's what an oath is. It's actually the same Hebrew word that is translated as oath in Genesis chapter 26. But for some reason, the translators of the ESV decided to use sworn promise at Psalm 105, Verses 8 and 9. Why did they do that? I haven't the faintest idea. I just want you to know it's the same Hebrew word. All right, had I been on the committee, I'd have been putting up my hand to say, hey, no, 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 no. It's the same word. Translate it the same way. People won't know that. But I, I, I wasn't asked. So I tell you now. But it's the same word. God made a covenant with Abraham. Now you might say, well, isn't covenant a synonym for promise? Well, sort of, but not exactly in the same way. The first time the word covenant is used in God's dealings with Abraham 
Not the first time it's used in the Bible, because it's used in the case of Noah. But the first time the word covenant gets used with Abraham is in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, we are told directly that God made a covenant with Abraham. Now, what was the occasion for that? Well, at the beginning of that chapter, God appears to Abraham. And he tells Abraham, a great word of assurance, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. But you know what? Abraham responded to that great affirmation not by saying, thank you. That blesses my soul. Abraham responded with a question. He said, Lord, what will you give me? I remain childless. The heir of my house is a servant by the name of Eliezer, that I bought in Damascus. And God says, that, oh, that man will not be your heir. Your son, one who will come forth from your own flesh, he will be your heir. And God took Abraham outside. He said, now look up in the sky. You see how many stars are up there? He said, that's how many descendants you will have. And we're told, Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed the Lord. In fact, the Hebrew means he continued to believe the Lord. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That passage is key in the New Testament, quoted in three different places to tell us that salvation is by faith and by faith alone. That we are saved in the same way that Abraham was. Now, it's my guess that at Genesis 15, Abraham is about 85 years of age. Now, why do I guess that? Because in chapter 16, the very next chapter, he is said to be 86 years of age at the time that Ishmael was born. So this is chapter 15, and I think he's, well, about 85. We know he's been in the land a while because his faith at this point in time, real as it is, is weak. It stands in need of some strengthening, some reinforcement. We see that as the passage moves on. After God affirms the promise of the son and the promise of the seed, then God says, I am the God that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And again, the great man of faith, the man who believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, responded to God's affirmation with a question. And he said, how shall I know? Lord, how shall I know that I'll receive this land? Now you know that Abraham began his journey with God at 75 years of age. Imagine that. 75 years of age. Wow, that's really starting to add up, isn't it? (laughs) 75 years of age. That's when Abraham began this journey. But that means he's been 10 years. And he hasn't seen a single descendant. And he doesn't possess any of the land. And although God doesn't tell him at this point in time, he's going to go another 15 years before he sees a son. His faith needs to be strong.
And that's why God desired to show in a more convincing way the heir, to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. The heirs of the promise were living short of the promise's fulfillment and their faith needed to be strengthened in order to persevere to the end, to when God would deliver all that he had promised. So he confirmed it with an oath. Now what did that mean? Well, if we had the time again, in Genesis 15 we'd read on. When Abraham said, how shall I know? And God said, well, bring me some animals. And he gave him a list. He said, now I want you to cut those animals in half. And I want you to lay them one side over against the other. This may seem like a bloody and gory scene to you, but it was well familiar to Abraham. This was the way in which covenants were made. Because when you make a covenant, you invoke a curse upon yourself that death will come to you if you prove to be unfaithful to that which you promise in the covenant. And so these animals are cut over one half against the other, laid end to end. And there's a path between them. And when it gets very dark and the vultures have begun to gather in the air, God shows up, appearing as a smoking pot and a flaming torch. Smoke and fire, just as he would appear upon Mount Sinai. And he passes between the pieces. And then he speaks to Abraham and he says, Now know for sure your descendants will be slaves in a land that is not theirs. But afterwards, I will bring them out with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and I will give them this land. Now, my friends, what does Abraham now have that he didn't have before? You see, up till this time in Genesis chapter 15, he had been living with God's promise. And it is impossible for God to lie in his promise. So what does the covenant add to the promise? Well, it's kind of like this. If you tell somebody that you promise to do something and you don't do it, then with that person you have lost your reputation. They don't respect you and they don't trust you anymore because you gave a word of promise and you didn't keep it. But when you take an oath, let's say in a court of law, and then you lie, you just don't lose your reputation. You're going to lose your freedom. You may lose your property. In the ancient world, you lost your life. Because what you're doing symbolically in that covenant-making ceremony is saying, may it be done to me as has been done to these animals if I do not keep my word. So you see, God was taking a curse upon himself, making his life to be ransomed to his promise. And it would mean that the man of faith, and let us not doubt here, the man of faith was a man of real, persevering faith, still stood in need of having that faith reinforced. It, I kind of look at Genesis 15 as kind of the Old Testament echo of Mark chapter 9. Do you remember when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration? 
When it comes back down, there's a scene of confusion at the bottom of that mountain. Because there's a man with a demon-possessed child that has brought him to Jesus, and this child has gone into convulsions, and the disciples have not been able to do anything about it. And so when Jesus comes down, then the man goes to Jesus. And Jesus first kind of deals with the crowd and their desire for signs and whatnot, and and then he sees this boy in the midst of his convulsion, and, and Jesus says to him tenderly, how long has it been like this? And the father said, since... Since he was very young, it, it often comes upon him so that he would throw himself into the fire or into a river to drown himself. And then the man says pleadingly, I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't do anything. But if you can do something, please help him. And Jesus looked at the man and he said, if you can. He said, all things are possible to him who believes. And you remember what the man said. It's one of the more famous sayings of the New Testament. I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Well, that's where Abraham is in Genesis chapter 15. He believes. But he needs help for his unbelief. Because you've lived ten years in the land and you haven't seen a single descendant. You possess not an acre of land. And God has promised you the whole cosmos and uncountable numbers of descendants. I believe, Lord. Help thou my unbelief. Why does God do it? He desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character. So he confirmed it with an oath. Why? So that we who have taken refuge in him might have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. That's the last part of it. He wants us to have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. You see, after Genesis 15, as Abraham moved through the next 15 years, awaiting the first child of the promise, he could stop and remember the sight, the sounds, and the smell of that night when God had passed between the pieces, when God had pledged his very life and being to the fulfillment of the promise. And just as it is impossible for God to lie in his promise, it is impossible for God to break his covenant. We have two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. His promise and his oath. His promise and his covenant. My friends, in our case, we do not look back to that dark night when animals were cut in half. We do not look back to the night when God promised that he would give his life for the fulfillment of the promise. We look back to the time when he did. Because these elements speak to us of the body which was given and the blood which was shed for us so that we who have taken refuge might have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. We, like Abraham, so long as we live in this world, will live short 
of the fulfillment. And we will be challenged by many a hard time as we walk in this world till we get to the next. Sometimes our path will be so difficult, our faith will be in need of much reinforcement. These elements are to strengthen us for just those times. Not to the night when God said he would give his life to fulfill the promise to you, but to the time when he did. Because this is Jesus' body given for you. This is his blood which was shed for you so that you who have taken refuge might have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before you. Let us pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, how we ask that now as we eat and drink together of those elements that you have given to remind us of the body which you gave and the blood which you shed, so that we might be forgiven of our sins and have a title to everlasting life and the full redemption and restoration of our bodies and our souls to be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray that you will feed and nourish our faith this day, for we ask it through Christ our Savior. Amen.